Coming up, a trail of footprints captures a moment in the life of a family of ancient hominins. Working on, on those footprints, putting my hands over them, it was really a, a, an exciting moment. And why scientists across the world have been working together to sequence the seahorse genome. Seahorses are lovely. <laughs> I think everybody loves seahorses. Plus, the spray-on chemical that could boost crop yield and resilience. This is The Nature Podcast for December the 15th, 2016. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. The sound was more like a squish than a thud as the tall australopiths strode across the East African savannah. A volcanic eruption had left a blanket of grey ash underfoot, while rainstorms that followed transformed the earth into wet cement. Squish. Squish. Four small individuals, females and their young, walked not far behind. Squish. 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 Later, ash rained down from the sky again, covering their tracks. And that was that, for 3.66 million years. Until, in the 1970s, the anthropologist Mary Leakey and her team found traces of the journey at a place called Leitoli in northern Tanzania. They're the oldest known footprints of any ancient human relative, and they suggest that Australopiths walked on two legs pretty routinely. Now, 40 years later, researchers found more footprints at the world-famous site. Ewan Calloway spoke with paleontologist Marco Corrine of the University of Perugia in Italy. Marco got a call from some colleagues in Tanzania when a building project unearthed the new prints. They were asked to carry out um, an impact assessment evaluation uh, because a new field museum wanted to be um, built in the in the um, in the Light Holy area. So they they excavated a large number of different pits, and in in one of the uh, sixty four pits they discovered the, the, new, the new trucks. So you've seen these prints. What, what was it like to work on them? <laughs> uh, it, it was really um, one of the most exciting moments in, in my whole life. The footprints are, they belong to uh, at least two individuals. And, and working on, on those footprints, putting my hands over, over them, it was really a, a, an exciting moment because uh, footprints are not normal fossils. Uh, they are not like fossil bones because they are a snapshot, a really caption of the, of the life of that animal living many, many uh, million years ago. How many million years ago? I mean, were these the same age as the original ones? Exactly. They have uh, the same age. They, they are 3.66 million years old. We are uh, confident that all the footprints in the in the Lytoli sites, the, the, the hominin footprints at least, were printed in, in the same time because we know for geological reasons that each sub-layers in this, in this stratigraphical unit must have been deposited in something like a few hours or one day maximum. So we, we think that the footprints belong to individuals of the same social group. What else are these footprints telling you about the the individuals who left them? Uh, the, the, the most striking result of our study is about the dimensions of the new footprints. When we were cleaning the, the new footprints, 
we, we real, realized that they were too large for an Australopithecus afarensis. But anyway, after our study, uh, we, we made some stature estimations based on the footprints uh, dimensions. And now we can say that one of our two new individuals was something like 1.65, 1.68 meters tall. Uh, which is the highest uh, estimated stature for Australopithecus afarensis and for all Australopithecines in Africa. Can you say anything else about about the group that this individual w- was traveling with from the prince? We think that we have one large male in our group and probably uh, two or three females with an estimated stature of about 1.3 meters. And then we have one or two uh, juvenile individuals. So we have a social group with both both sexes and, and some, some young. These social structures allowed us to, to also to think about the reproductive strategies of, this, of these animals. If you look at the modern apes, for example, gorillas or chimpanzees, you can find very, very different uh, reproductive behaviors. And we think that Australopithecus afarensis had a, a, a reproductive strategy more similar to the gorilla than to the, the chimpanzee. In the gorilla, we, you have the core of the social group is composed by one very large male, the, the silverback, with um, a, a number of, of females for, for him. So you're thinking that this, this large, big-footed male Australopith was kind of like a silverback? Is that the idea? Something like this, exactly. So you've got this group of these, this you know, adult male, this large adult male, maybe two females, maybe some juveniles, walking uh, in the same direction 3.66 million years ago at the same point of time. I mean, wh- have you ever tried to imagine what these individuals were doing? <laughs> no, uh, because uh, state of the heart is impossible to, to, <laughs> to think about it. Uh, we don't really know. Uh, we can just imagine something, but this is not science. This is just fiction. <laughs> they were moving on the same direction uh, with a moderate to low speed. So uh, we can exclude any any particular behavior such as, you know, running, escaping something or, or, or something like this. So it, it seems that the behavior was that of the normal foraging behavior in, a, in an African savanna. That was Marco Corrine speaking with reporter Ewan Calloway. I know what you're thinking. Couldn't this just be a lady Australopithecus with very big feet? Marco has an answer for that too. <laughs> yes, it's interesting. Uh, uh, it's possible. Everything is possible in science, but it's, the probability is very low. Uh, we, we are uh, confident that the largest individual is a male. Find that paper in the journal eLife this week and a news story by Ewan Calloway at nature.com forward slash news. Stay tuned for the latest on clever putty and talking monkeys. Yes, the research highlights are even more surreal than usual this week. But before we get to that, Sharmini Bundell has been chatting with fish fan Axel Meyer of the University of Konstanz in Germany about what it is about the seahorse genome that makes the seahorse so weird. Seahorses are lovely. <laughs> I think everybody loves seahorses. There were certain features in the seahorse that define the essence of what a seahorse is. One is they don't have a caudal fin, they have a prehensile tail like a monkey, they are, uh, have lost their pelvic fins, they have a long snout, uh, they lack teeth, 
And I think one of the most defining features is that they look like a seahorse. They look, uh, they swim sort of vertically, and and the males become pregnant, and that is female trans females transfer transfer eggs into the pouch of a male, and the male broods the babies uh, in his pouch. And so, what you want to know is um, what's going on in their genes that that ended up making this seahorse creature. Exactly. So the fish has certain traits that uh, are found in all vertebrates. So, for example. The TBX4 gene is a gene that is switched on early, early on during embryogenesis in all um, vertebrates at the place where the pelvic fins or the hind limbs would develop. And all seahorses lack those uh, um, pelvic fins, those, le- those, those, those legs, if you will. And one of the things we were interested to understand is what is the developmental basis of, 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 of this lack of this particular important uh, trait that almost every other fish and and vertebrate has. And um, as we were sequencing the genome, we noticed that we couldn't find this very important gene, TBX4. So not finding the TBX4 gene was a strong hint for us that this is a causal link explaining why they have lost the pelvic fins. And and that was the hint that you got from the genome, but can you actually test that? Is there a way to know? Right. So what we ended up doing was to make a knockout of this gene in a zebrafish that has this gene normally, that normally has pelvic fins, to see what happens to the phenotype. What does the fish look like if we knock out this gene in this fish? And this was done with CRISPR-Cas. And it turned out that um, the embryos lost the pelvic fins. So that's, that sort of uh, was strongly suggestive that the loss of TBX4 in the, in the seahorse um, is the explanation, or at least part of the explanation, for how the pelvic fins were lost. So you made a genetically modified fish that didn't have this key gene. Exactly. And did it look like a seahorse? Well, <laughs> if you squint your eyes, maybe. It, it was lacking the pelvic fins, one of the features, one of the traits that is, is seahorse-specific. So it's only, that's only a tiny proportion of seahorsiness. Right. There's still many mysteries, like the bony skeleton. You know, they lack ribs, but they have sort of this bony armor, like a knight uh, with spines sticking out and this prehensile tail and so on. Uh, it's completely up in the air how this, um, how this evolves. And for those features that you had found associated genes, was it relatively obvious how evolution had ended up taking that path? More often than not, we ended up finding that duplication, making extra copies of genes, or the loss of certain genes, is a good part of the explanation of why certain features are the way they are. So, for example, the fact that the number of genes involved in smell is so small um, probably explains the lifestyle of being a visually hunting ambush hunter, of being camouflaged and waiting for the prey to come to you. So we can see which genes have changed and we can also see how that fits in with the seahorse's weird lifestyle. But when you looked at the genetics, are seahorses really that different from other fish? Well, this was something that you couldn't have predicted, but it turned out to be the case that they show the fastest rate of molecular evolution. By the rate of molecular evolution, are we talking about mutations? Right. Usually one does not necessarily expect that the rate of molecular and phenotypic evolution are are correlated. In the seahorses, I guess one could argue that they have changed in in terms of their biology and their behavior and um, morphology um, quite a bit. And the fact that we ended up finding that the rate of molecular evolution is fast too might hint 
although I wouldn't uh, think that this is necessarily going to hold up, but might hint at a relationship of rate of molecular and phenotypic evolution. So what's next? It would be looking at other species that, like I said, still have caudal fins, still have pelvic fins, um, lay eggs on the belly of the males but don't have pouches and stuff like that. And then ideally, of course, is to sort of turn the pipefish into a seahorse or, or vice versa. <laughs> Frankensteinian experiments, I suppose. That was Axel Meyer from the University of Konstanz talking to Sharmini Bundell about seahorse genes. That paper is out now at nature.com nature. Later in the show, could cracks be starting to appear in Einstein's theory of general relativity? That's in the news chat, but now it's time for the research highlights, read this week by Curry Lock in Boston. Take Silly Putty. You remember that stretchy, rubbery material you used to play with as a kid and add to it some flakes of graphene. What do you get? G Putty, a silicone polymer that conducts electricity. Researchers created G-Putty in the lab and found that graphene, layers of carbon atoms, transform Silly Putty into a material that can detect small changes in pressure. They used G-Putty to make a sensor that could measure a person's blood pressure and even detect the light steps of a tiny spider. The researchers say their material could be used to make low-cost blood pressure monitors. Find out more about the work in the journal Science. If monkeys had the brains to do it, they could probably talk. Researchers took x-rays of long-tailed macaques as they made various sounds. They then used those scans to make a computer model of the monkey's vocal tract. They found that monkeys have all the vocal anatomy they need to make speech sounds. The animals even have the physical ability to ask a question that many of us would love to hear, at least from a fellow human. If you had trouble making that out, That was the sound of a computer-generated macaque asking, Will you marry me? Will you marry me? The researchers conclude that monkeys can't talk because they lack the brain cells needed for fine motor control and other skills required for speech. You can find the paper in the journal Science Advances. Well, that's put me off ever marrying a monkey. Thanks, Cory. The number of people living on the planet is rising. Growing enough food for everyone is already a challenge, and the UN expects the population to grow by another 2 billion by the middle of the century. As if that weren't enough to think about, the planet's heating up and making the problem more acute. So we need to find ways to grow more food in a way that is resilient to changeable conditions, like drought. I think it's one of the kind of the big grand, grand challenges that, that humanity faces. This is Matthew Paul from Rothamsted Research in the UK. We live in a, a very kind of stable country and economy, but it would take relatively, I mean, little to unsettle that, and the prosperity and the stability that we take for granted could be lost. Plant biologists like Matthew are doing their bit to protect our food security. Farmers have known for centuries that selective breeding can be a powerful tool. More recently, and more controversially, some progress has come from genetic modification as Matthew explained to me when we chatted this week. Genetic modification has actually been quite transformational in agriculture, particularly for things like uh, resistance to insect pests. But for more complicated processes like yield and uh, resilience, yield resilience, 
it's more difficult to genetically modify this because there are, there are a number of genes involved and we don't completely understand what determines yield in crops. So, you know, targeting single genes or, or it is unlikely to be successful because yield determines changes in more than just one or two genes usually. What, what did you guys want to do? What did you want to do to try and potentially increase crop resilience, crop yield that was different to genetic modification? So we had the idea really that we could perturb an important sugar signaling pathway in plants. So if you think about mammals and regulating our glucose levels in our blood, it's really important for human health. Well, the idea potentially that you could modify sugar levels in crops would be one way potentially to uh, improve crop yields if we could find a way of doing it. The plants don't have insulin, but they have other regulatory mechanisms. And uh, the trahalose pathway that we've been working on for a number of years is a sugar that occurs in plants that's involved as a sugar signal that actually tells the plant how much sugar is available for growth and development. And one way perhaps to perturb this and to actually increase sugar levels, maybe to increase photosynthesis as well and then get, get more sugar moving to the grain and the ears where you want the sugar to go to for high yields, this may be a way of perturbing it and, and producing a chemical that you can then just spray onto a crop uh, would provide a, you know, a relatively easy solution compared to the complexity of genetic approaches. So this is a chemical you're just spraying onto the crop. That It's not something you have to... I don't know, inject into the roots or... No, it's just sprayed on and then it activates gene expression for the use of the sucrose, for the allocation, the transport of the sucrose and the use of the sucrose within the plant. So you can actually prime the grains to readily accept more sugar from the rest of the plant and the the grains are bigger. So what do you find? You've mentioned that the, the grain's bigger. Do you, do you find any other effects? So interestingly, yes, we, we tried out uh, spraying the chemical at different stages of development. So this is a really nice thing about the chemical approach. So you can spray the chemical at any any particular time point in any particular environmental condition. So we had the idea and we got evidence actually that um, T6P enables growth recovery from low temperature, but also growth recovery from drought. So we did the experiment where wheat plants were grown under drought conditions for about a week. The chemical was then sprayed onto the vegetated parts of the plant before rewatering. So upon rewatering, we found the plants recovered much better. And, and, and the nice thing about this is it's been very difficult to combine increases in yield potential with increases in, in resilience. So the biological processes involved in both are often moving in opposite directions. So uh, drought resistant, if you think of desert plants, for example, they're very slow growing, they're, you know, they hold, hold back their growth. So this, this sugar chemical potentially can combine both yield potential with resilience. All you need to do is just spray it at different stages of development. Why don't we just start doing this tomorrow? What, what do we still need to find out and be sure about before this could actually be implemented? We've been working on this already for, for 10 years. We got funding from BBSRC in 2006 to start this work. And uh, we need to also then start really doing more intensive uh, field experiments. Now, the field environment is extremely variable, but we're pretty confident that uh, having got such a big effect in, in glasshouse experiments that we will be able to get positive effects in the field as well. Well, how does it feel to be working in this area and see those kinds of positive effects that could one day help protect food security? It's really rewarding because we're combining really interesting fundamental science with something that's got application in the field. So 
you know, often you, you do the fundamental science, you just hope that it will have some application one day, but this potentially has application, you know, within a few years. So, I mean, I find that extremely rewarding. That was Matthew Paul from Rothamsted Research in the UK. Find his full paper at nature.com forward slash nature. Finally this week, it's the news. You already know that. What you don't know is that Heidi Ledford is here to tell us all about it. Hi, Heidi. Hi. And we're going to start with a physics test for you. I'm sorry Mm. about this, but you've been nominated this week (laughs) to talk about gravitational waves and LIGO and black holes. So for people like me who don't follow the ins and outs of this, the last time you may have thought of LIGO, this large project, was back in February when they announced that they had detected gravitational waves. Um, And this was a big deal because it was a confirmation of Einstein's general theory of relativity. So now it turns out that the story didn't end there, that people were picking through the data ever since then. And now what they found from that data um, is actually uh, evidence that general relativity can break down under extreme situations. And particularly what they're looking at is at the edge of black holes. So they found these kind of waves in the first instance, these gravitational waves. And now what this team appears to be seeing when they've reanalyzed and looked through the LIGO data again are kind of echoes of these waves. And this they're they're using to suggest um, that there might be something crazy going on at the edge of black holes. That's right. That's right. So at the the edge of a black hole, which is called an event horizon, um, I guess there's been some debate about what that how that behaves, how the edge behaves. You know, we know that everything is getting sort of sucked down into the center of the black hole. And so the thought initially was that there's just nothing there at the edge. It's just all getting sucked down. Um, But then some people came along and said, no, you know, actually, we think there might be what they call a firewall at the edge. And that's just a a sort of an area with these very highly charged particles that just sort of burn everything to a crisp as it comes through and crosses the event horizon. But they didn't have, you know, evidence really one way or another. So now a team has come along and said, oh, we've seen these echoes that suggest that there is something going on at the edge, maybe a firewall. Now, we don't know yet whether that's true. These are sort of the first hints coming through. It may turn out to be just a statistical fluke. So for a while, physicists have suspected this isn't the first time they've thought, hang on a minute, is something crazy going on at the edge of black holes? But there is room here, isn't there, if these echoes do turn out to be there, for these even more exotic explanations of what's going on. That's right. So it doesn't just have to be a firewall. It could also be something called a fuzzball. These fuzzballs are tangled up threads of energy with a fuzzy surface in place of a sharply defined event horizon at the, at the edge of the black hole. Um, that's one possibility. Apparently, there are other possibilities that have been proposed as well. And LIGO is going to keep looking for more black hole mergers. And I'm sure we're not going to be short of more data as physicists continue to try and test these exotic theories. Heidi, uh, give me a high five. You've got yeah. some amazing <laughs> physics. Yes. Now you're on to more comfortable territory as we move to a story about Donald Trump. He may or may not be deciding to appoint a science advisor. Yeah. So we had an interesting story looking at, you know, whether he maybe won't. It's a possibility. Uh, We don't really know yet. So in the past, some presidents like uh, Barack Obama and uh, Bill Clinton, for example, have already announced who they wanted to appoint as their science advisor in December. You know, obviously, we're just now entering December. Donald Trump may still do it. 
Um, but as the article points out, you know, some presidents have taken a lot longer and some of Trump's advisors have come from a think tank that have even recommended scrapping the Office of Science and Technology Policy, which is um, run by the science advisor. And so it took someone like George Bush, for example, a few months to appoint his. Are there trends that people have seen in how quickly one appoints a science advisor and then what happens to science as a result? I think one concern is that if Donald Trump waits for a long time to appoint a science advisor, that that science advisor won't have any say in some of the decisions that come along early in the administration. So Donald Trump has talked about, you know, taking a different stance on energy policy, for example, than the Obama administration has. And without a science policy advisor there, um, you know, obviously that may not be informed by science. Trump has already shown a tendency to really value input more from businessmen uh, than from scientists. So it would be sort of in keeping with um, history to date. And what kinds of issues traditionally would a science advisor, would a science advisor be able to, to get in on to provide advice on? A president deals with a lot of scientific issues. I mean, we can think back to, um, for example, George W. Bush, when he came into office and right away, you know, started mucking around a bit, frankly, in, in embryonic stem cell research. Um, that's something where a science advisor could give advice and say, look, this is what it's going to do to the community. This is These are the issues and so forth. I think scientists would like to see him appoint a scientific advisor, someone who's strong and has his ear, but that's it does seem somewhat unlikely, given what we know of Trump so far, that that person is going to have a lot of sway. So he has a tendency to appoint people who don't like that agency to begin with, right? So we have the example with the EPA, um, where he's appointed someone who sued the EPA multiple times. So you know, it does make you wonder, who would he put in the Office of Science and Technology Policy? And would they really be advocating on the side of science? We don't know. All right. Well, Heidi, we're inching towards the story that you are perhaps most familiar with uh, at this point, (laughs) because we should mention that in the last week or so, there has been a development in the CRISPR patent row. Mm -hmm. For for listeners who may have forgotten or or haven't heard about this row in the first place, what's going on with with CRISPR? Well, CRISPR-Cas9 is this method for editing genomes. It's very hot right now in research labs, but there is a fight over who controls intellectual property to that technique. And the two contenders? The two contenders, yeah. So lots of people have filed patents on various aspects of CRISPR, um, but there are a lot of – everybody's been watching this this one fight between two particular uh, groups. And one's based at UC Berkeley as well as other institutions, but we often refer to it as the Berkeley Group. And then the other group is at the Broad Institute in Massachusetts. These two groups have filed patents that are considered foundational. So for a lot of applications of CRISPR-Cas9, you would need access to that intellectual property. And so the patent holder, you would that would be a negotiation, but often there's some money changing hands. Uh, there could be royalties even on the therapy that's produced eventually that goes back to that patent holder. Uh, so that's really, you know, people say there could be a lot of money at stake. And this week um, in Virginia, a court heard from both sides. That's right. There's this odd uh, patent court that's ongoing right now to to try to determine who, which team was the first to invent CRISPR-Cas9 um, gene editing. Uh, so the, we heard oral arguments, you know, the lawyers presenting their case before the patent judges. What happened? Well, it sounds like it turned out to be a bit more interesting than I thought it was. I thought it was just going to be, you know, these people coming up and presenting the same thing that I've been reading about for months and months. And that was essentially what happened. But it sounds as though you could get a sense from the the questioning from the patent judges who were there, which way they were leaning. So it sounds as though they were pretty hard on the Berkeley team. 
and some of the claims that the Berkeley team has made. The Berkeley team initially when they filed their patent, it was really focused on applications in prokaryotes like bacteria, Um, whereas the Broad team was much more focused on um, applications in eukaryotes like people. So uh, the Berkeley team has been arguing all this time that it was just an obvious extension to go from their claims to, to work in, say, human cells. And the patent judges, it sounds like, pushed them pretty hard on that point. It seems to me like court cases go on for absolutely centuries. What do you see in the future of this case? You know, people had been telling me that this could also go on for for years. Um, but after hearing the oral arguments, at least one person is one patent lawyer uh, has is now saying, you know, he thinks it might be done in a couple of months. So it's possible this particular case may be solved. But then there are many other patents out there. <laughs> High stakes game. All right. Thank you, Heidi, for coming in to tell us about those stories. We should mention that they are by different authors. The LIGO story, look out for that. It's by Zia Morali and it's causing quite a lot of uh, excitement online. Alexandra Witsi wrote the story about the science advisor to Trump, whether there will or won't be one. And the CRISPR patent story this week was by Sarah Reardon. Uh, if you're a fan of CRISPR, you'll be pleased to hear that one of the Christmas carols in next week's show will be about CRISPR uh, in some slightly flippant way and it's a beauty (laughs) (laughs) so stay tuned for that that's our last episode of the year coming at you in a week or so that's all for this week and almost for the year next week is a bumper episode extra full of festive cheer and scientific joy until then I'm Kerry Smith and I'm Adam Levy This episode of The Nature Podcast is supported by Altmetric. Which research captured the public imagination this year? Altmetric knows the answer. They've compiled their annual list of the top 100 research articles, the pieces that have had the most attention online in 2016. Hot topics include obesity, Zika virus, space discovery, and right at the top, a paper written by a very famous author. Beyonce? No, Lemonade was not a research paper. Einstein? He hasn't been publishing so much lately. The answer is Barack Obama. He wrote a healthcare reform paper and published it in the Journal of the American Medical Association in July. It's the first academic paper to be published by a sitting president. Hmm, the affiliation just says President of the United States, Washington, D.C. Citations show you the influence of a paper amongst academics, but seeing what's really caught the attention of a broader audience is another way of gauging what research has made an impact this year visit altmetric.com slash top 100 to see the list for yourself.